0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, good afternoon. Uh, This is the uh, final lecture for uh, Fall 15, Environmental Ethics. Uh, We're very privileged to have a a guest lecture from Rinaldo Brutico of the World Business Academy. He's an economist, a lawyer, an entrepreneur, and founder and CEO of the World Business Academy. In our class, of course, recently, we've been discussing climate change, carbon policy, drilling, spilling, pumping, fracking, blasting the tops of mountains. And we've been kind of dancing around this issue of alternative energy and how to fund it and whatnot. So now we have a wonderful chance to hear from a concrete, business-minded, get-it-done approach uh, from Rinaldo Brutico, and he's calling this talk, Democratizing Power, Fossil Fuels to 100% Renewables. Let's welcome Rinaldo.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you everyone for coming today. I appreciate the opportunity to do this. This is actually, as my wife would tell you, one of the things I love most is sharing information. Uh, some people call it teaching, I call it just sharing. And hopefully, if I share it well, it stimulates you to think for yourself what you could add to it, how you could go beyond. And that's what everybody in my generation is hoping for, from your generation. So I'll start with a question. And I want you to be thinking about this question. And at the very end, you're going to answer the question for yourself, silently if you wish, or out loud. You'll take a pick. Here's the question. If you had the opportunity to solve the largest single challenge on the planet, what would it take for you not to get engaged in that solution? What would you let stop you if you could actually see the solution to the largest challenge facing human civilization? Let me put that in context. As bad as you think climate change is, it's much worse. Everybody in this room who's younger than me is going to live in a world that's quite dystopian if we do not reverse what we've already done. So it's not enough to just to slow it down. And it's interesting, this lecture is occurring with the Paris talks just opening today. So it's not enough to slow down carbon dioxide because carbon dioxide is no longer the largest problem. The largest problem now is methane. It's gurgling up from permafrost, which we named permanently frozen ground, only to find out that after tens of thousands of years, we've figured out how to melt it with CO2. It's gurgling up from the oceans. There's one rift along the Atlantic seaboard alone, over 2,000 miles long, gurgling methane up every day. The planet has a fever. Methane on initial, initial release is 60 to 80 times more heat-absorbing than carbon dioxide. So we have a terrible, terrible problem. If you went to zero CO2 tomorrow morning, which nobody in Paris is remotely hoping, that would not solve the problem. Now, I want you to understand that's the magnitude of the problem. And as Governor Brown said in January, in one sense, fossil fuels, uh, that's how we got here. You know, They replaced... Uh, the prior use of steam, coal for that wood, for that running water. So fossil fuels got us to where they are today. It doesn't do us any good to really question whether or not that was a good thing or a bad thing when we went heavily into fossil fuels around 1900. Trach and you know, first oil well back in 1880s in Pennsylvania. The better question really is, we now know that the planetary fuel system being built on fossil fuels is not only not sustainable, it will kill us. It will terminate human civilization. So that qualifies for the biggest challenge on the planet. Fair enough. That qualifies. The end of human civilization, which all of us belong to, is not something any of us want to look forward to. Now, we get the choice. That's its need. We get the choice. So at the end of this lecture, I want you to think about the question I asked at the beginning. If you could solve the biggest single challenge facing human civilization, What would keep you from doing it? What would you let get in the way of the decision to rush forward to victory? So with that, let's start. I like this slide. Alexander Graham Bell was a very interesting man. And he wanted to call his buddy Watson in the next room. And he said, Watson, can you hear me? And in 1876, Watson heard him because between their two rooms was a copper wire. And that copper wire, and this, again, 1880s, remember this date, 1880s is the decade. New York is the city. So that copper wire became the way that we all thought telephones had to operate. And if we didn't have a copper wire, we couldn't make a phone call. And as long as we held that belief system, 23% of the world's population had access to phones. Well, it turns out, within 10 years, we started making cell phones, and from roughly 1996 to 2006, we went from having none to having billions literally and today we have about nine as of today we have about 90 percent penetration meaning 90 percent of the population of the planet has a cell phone that's fast that's a very important number because it was 23 percent when we had the copper wire so what did we learn we learned that the copper wire is how we got started but it's not where we wanted to end up and if you if you and this is the gentleman who invented it most people don't know that martin cooper did that now why is the cell phone so important well, the cell phone, cell phone is, gave rise to the Internet, obviously. But more importantly, it became the number one way. For example, in India, the way they penetrated in India, literally a single woman would buy a cell phone on credit. She would become the telephone exchange for the village. The local farmer would come up and pay her so many rupees, and he'd call, should I bring my cassava melons to the market today, or should I hold them? You know, and, and so what would happen is the village got connected to the market. So it radically started changing commerce at the village level. It became a way that you could engage in education. It became ways that you could understand about health, and ultimately, as we know from the, the Arab Spring, it became the way to communicate democracy. So, cell phone utilization isn't just a cute toy for us in the West. Actually, as, valu- as invaluable as it is to us in the West, and the cell phone is invaluable, it's far more valuable in the developing world. So, here we are. We talked about 19th century technology the wa- wire, the copper that went between Bell. And Watson. Well, we in that same decade, 1880s, same city, New York, we ended up creating the first long-distance transmission of high of high power, high high voltage. And we thought that the wires strung under those towers was the only way you could get power from the power plant to the people. And as long as we thought that, over a billion and a half people on the planet didn't have power. Think about that. Over a billion and a half people do not have electricity to this day. And by the way, if they wait for the wire to get there, it's never coming. It will never arrive at their doorstep. Prime Minister Modi of India finally concluded that the only way to do this was to skip the wire. And I'll explain that to you in a little bit. So because of this, rural villages remain dark. The poor remain cut off from communications. Technology and education are beyond their, their capacity to develop. They have access to the grid in India, so they don't even have the ability to get any kind of advanced form of living. And in sub-Sahara, it's only one in eight people have usable electricity. So you're talking about a whole bunch of people in China, in India, and over in Africa that do not have access to the modern world. Why is that important? Well, we know that access to electricity is absolutely key to the access to the Internet, and to access to information. If you've got electricity, I can put a satellite downlink and uplink in your village and you could be taking MOOCs from Harvard, okay? So we know that there's a thing called the digital divide. And what's happening is those of us who are better educated are increasingly becoming more affluent and further removed from those of us who aren't better educated. And And what you're seeing is in those countries with the lowest level of education, particularly the status of women. So the lower the female education rate in the country, the more destabilized it is. And if you want to see what it looks like when women have no rights at all, welcome to the ISIS caliphate. Right? That's what it looks like when women have no rights whatsoever. Now, if you can change that, though, if you can start to access information and education as one of the primary rights of women, if you can close that digital divide, you can gain access to the Internet. You can get gain access to the satellites. It reverses the entire dynamic of what it means to be poor in the world today and live on less than a dollar and a quarter a day. So getting electricity to the villages is really kind of important. Now, a lot of people don't realize that in, currently in developing countries, you're either stuck with darkness or you can have something like this generator. Oops, went back. For some reason it's not wanting to go, I'm trying. How would you like the operating room in your local hospital to be run by that machine? And if you live in the villages of India, China, or Africa, that's your best bet. And by the way, you would often get that bet because it costs too much to buy the diesel fuel, even if you can keep the generator running. So for over a billion people, what are they dealing with? Kerosene stoves, in enclosed environments, camel dung, cow dung, sometimes wood. The incidences of cancer and lung cancer are over the top. So you, you are born into a society where you're not going to be educated and where the air you're going to breathe is going to be toxic and it's going to be enclosed. So that's not a good prescription for over a billion and a half people. That's a huge moral dilemma. Now, it turns out that not only is it a moral dilemma, what that generator just did to the air, you and I are breathing too. For those of you who weren't paying attention yesterday, it was so bad in Beijing that the government warned you to get off the streets and to wear a mask. And that is not abnormal in Beijing. That's the new the new normal. So where do we go with this? We say this 19th century technology, which is this aging grid system that I just pointed out to you that was from 19th century, from 1880s to New York, it is so vulnerable that if, if, in, in events like storms, mudslides, and even just a single squirrel, and this is true, a single squirrel brought the one down in the northeast, it's been proven, can plunge millions, if not tens of millions of people into darkness. These centralized systems are vulnerable to terrorism and cyber attack. We'll talk about that in a minute. And this old technology holds us back from advancing clean energy development. Why? Because in order to, quote, balance the grid, you're not allowed to go to too much in renewables. So right now in California, it's really hard. It's actually going to be impossible to have a grid that's going to deliver 100% renewable energy. So we have a solution for that. And increasingly, we're reaching a lot of agreement. So the chief theoretician, the Ph.D. in charge of planning for the grid's future, formally agrees with everything you're going to hear in this talk today, including we have to dismantle the grid. He agrees. It's his job to figure out what to do with the grid, and he agrees. His name is Lorenzo Christoph. You'll see him later on. He agrees this is the way to end the grid, is to go beyond it the way we did with cell phones. Okay? Ted Koppel just released a book last week called Lights Out. Interesting book. And what it says is that the most vulnerable piece of our society to terrorist attack is actually our grid. It's the one thing you can take down pretty easily. It's vulnerable. And when you take it down anywhere, it cascades. That's why one squirrel brought the whole Northeast down. Literally one squirrel. So what he's saying is, and if you read the book, he's saying, look, the Russians and the Chinese are capable of doing this today. Probably the Iranians as well, by the way. But those three countries don't want to do it because if they bring us back to the Stone Age, we'll do it to them. We know how to do it, too. We can hack them. They can hack us. What he's really saying is rogue elements like ISIS don't seem to be constrained by the idea of that kind of uh, destruction. In fact, they would like it. And because they have no grid they depend on, there's no way we can even strike back. So we're particularly vulnerable to terrorism because of the grid. Now, show of hands, how many people in this room, if I gave you the choice, I said, would you like to still be vulnerable to terrorism? Anybody want that? Okay, show of hands. How would you like to be able to be insulated from a terrorist attack that could plunge just back into the dark ages? How many would like that? Come on, nobody? Everybody? I hope so. Because you know what happens when the power goes out, right? Not just these lights go out. Everything starts to come down when the power goes out including heart and lung machines, breathing apparatuses for people who are terminally ill. And we've had that experience here in Santa Barbara recently. When you lose power in a culture like ours, you have lost everything, and that's what Koppel's writing about. It's the ultimate vulnerability. His takeaway is the U.S. is incredibly vulnerable to massive disruption from cyber attack on our three major electrical grids. By just the way, there are three, just to let you know. Uh, Texas is actually one all by itself. It's interesting. Um, So here's where these two things come together and really meet someplace that you should be directly interested in. Santa Barbara, California. Santa Barbara County is the most at-risk county in the state of California. Show of hands. How many of you knew that? Did you know you were at risk of losing all your power? Okay, a couple of you did. Most of you didn't. Here's why. If you see this arrow, here's where you are sitting right now, leading UCSB. There's a giant 220 kilovolt line that comes on the back mountains around, and is what dumps power into the Glen Annie substation. And from Glen Annie, it then proceeds southerly. So everybody from Glen Annie station south is getting electricity from that 220 kilovolt line. Today, that represents 69% of our energy. (coughs) Meaning that if it goes out suddenly, the other 31% would have to be dramatically rerouted. It would take many, many days to do that. And those blackouts would last on a rolling basis for weeks, if not months. Uh, In a place like UCSB, for example, I know for a fact there are experiments going on here today, particularly in your physics labs and whatnot, that would be totally compromised if the power went out even for a few hours, let alone a few days, or in this case, weeks or months. Is this likely to happen, you would ask? Seems like a pretty scary thing. What are the chances it would happen? The answer is almost certainty. It's going to happen. And how do we know it is because Edison told us so. Southern California Edison basically told us that the power that comes through those towers has been compromised by both fires, the Justicia, the Gap, the TIFAR, and it's been compromised by the El Nino of 1997. And they specifically warned if there was to be another El Nino, which guess what's coming this year, the biggest El Nino of all time, that the likelihood is that one or more of those towers would come down, plunging us into darkness. So I want to give you some sense of how immediate this is. That El Nino is due to hit us by the end of January. So I'm going to show you something now. It's courtesy of K if for those of you who didn't see it. It was on the local ABC affiliate about two weeks ago. And this helps you understand what's really going on.
2: And it's a hard. It's a hard. It's a hard. It's a hard. It's a hard rain. This report, titled South Santa Barbara County Reliability Issues, exposes the problem.
1: Everybody between Goleta and Ventura is now been designated the most vulnerable communities in California. Because if those lines come down, and Edison has said, they're coming now.
2: Rinaldo Brutico, president of Santa Barbara-based World Business Academy, or WBA, a nonprofit, wants everyone to see the documents they discovered, filed by Southern California Edison with the California Public Utilities Commission.
1: What they're saying is, we're going to warn you that your lights are going to go out.
2: Full legal disclosure by Edison, warning the public of a potentially catastrophic power failure, not just for days, but weeks. The documents are dated October 26th of 2012. The root of the problem centers on the two main lines that deliver the bulk of power from Ventura County to Goleta. The lines run from the same tower, which Edison points out dramatically increases the risk for a simultaneous outage on both lines. Plus, the towers and lines run through eroded terrain hit hard by the El Nino of 97 and further damaged by the ZACA, GAP, T and Jesusita fires. Rudico believes we are one big storm, one earthquake away from a major disaster. He took his concerns straight to the Santa Barbara City Council.
1: I believe it's possible uh, that our political leadership uh, felt that it didn't have the uh, sophistication to address this question or maybe it wasn't urgent enough I don't know
2: we know how catastrophic that is Mayor Helene Schneider says she first became aware of the situation during recent major wildfires unfortunately we just we just don't have the authority to mandate certain things but we are making a lot of noise
0: could you comment on these photographs of the transmission towers
2: Some of that noise came in the form of a scolding during the city's September 6th council meeting when two SoCal Edison reps gave updates on downtown power upgrades and a member of the WBA presented the council with a photo it had never seen before.
0: This is one of the towers that is compromised.
2: The photo shows an uprooted and deteriorating cement footing found at the base of a tower near Casitas Lake outside Ojai. Councilman Greg Hart took the lead and ran with it, incredulous that Edison didn't make this the day's top priority. This
0: would kind of scream that this needs to be fixed.
2: And I apologize. I haven't, you know, I, I haven't seen those photos. We found it curious that Edison spokesperson Rondi Guthrie had never seen that photo until now. Alicia Piatto, another Edison representative at that meeting, offered to investigate and have Edison crews repair the footing. And there may be many more damaged footings just like that one. But as Guthrie explained to the council, these troubled towers are deep in the backcountry and very difficult to get to. I think due to the location of the towers, there are things that are out of our control. El Nino-generated storms are among our biggest threats. In Edison's own words, natural disasters such as landslides or earthquakes could limit access to transmission line or tower repair or replacement by up to several weeks. The World Business Academy's estimate is much longer. Two months.
1: Oh my goodness, this is a time bomb ticking. And there's probably nothing more dangerous for our community than to lose our power.
2: Nearly 83,000 customers.
1: Every home, every business, every school, every police station, every fire station, every first responder station is all going to go dark. Hospital, yes. Hospital 2. Hospital 2. I apologize, the sound has kind of got off there in the middle. But this is the, um, the tower they're referring to. Now, one of the things you should observe, because here we're at UCSBA, sophisticated institution of higher learning, I think you can all tell that a four-footed tower with one foot sort of in midair is not a good thing. So these are giant towers, or the ones that we showed you pictures of earlier, these transmission towers. They're designed to have four feet on the ground, encased in concrete, which is supposed to be buried. The reason this one isn't is because of the El Nino of 1997. One more good rainstorm, and that tower is coming down. So one of the things we have to be aware of is <clears throat> this small block of exposed concrete, and many others like it, is what stands between normal life for all of us and rolling blackouts or worse for weeks or months. And the reason for the months is because um, Edison said in its filings with the commission in 2012 that the ground has to be dry before they can do the repairs because they, they have to put in very big, heavy equipment. So it's not just a the day after it goes out, they can send some guys up there in a four-wheel vehicle. they gotta, they got to wait till the ground really dries. So we're looking at some very, very serious issues of vulnerability. So <clears throat> what do we do about it? Okay, the number one thing we think we need to do is a breakthrough to the 21st century. It's about time we got there, which means no more transmission wires. We don't want to be dependent on the 220-kilovolt lines or any other transmission wires going forward. And what we want to do is we want to create islands of electricity, which are resilient, reliable, and 100% renewable, that's right. We can create today, here in Santa Barbara, islands of electricity that are 100% renewable. We'll show you how. And by creating that local renewable asset, we will also be able to create a tremendous amount of hydrogen from our wastewater that's being poured into the ocean from our treatment plants. And with that hydrogen, we'll be able to fuel our cars, as you probably know, the Kia has been on the road in California for a year. is a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. And Toyota is now on the road uh, as well. Uh, Honda will be coming next year. So a fuel that both powers your electrical grid and your electricity, rather, and powers your car is the, is the, is the wave of the future. In fact, Honda is going to come up with their car. It's going to have a special plug on the front. So you can drive your car all day and you go home at night and you plug your house into your car and your car engine, your fuel cell, runs your house. That's what's coming. And that makes sense because it's a mobile power plant. Um, And the cost, by the way, of hydrogen is already at a price of about $3.20 a gallon equivalent, so very close to gasoline, and dropping. So what is the fuel cell and what's a microgrid? Well, first let's talk the question, what's a microgrid? A microgrid is 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 an island of energy, and I'm going to play this little video for you because this comes from your sister organization, UCSD, where they actually did a microgrid, and you're going to see what it's like.
0: The University of California at San Diego is well known as one of the top research institutions in the nation. Located in La Jolla, California on a 1,200 acre campus, UC San Diego is home to 450 buildings and a daily population of 45,000. To serve the energy needs of the campus, UC San Diego operates a sophisticated microgrid system that supplies nearly 80% of the campus's annual power. Energy is extremely important to UC San Diego. Uh, We are an extremely energy intensive university, uh, primarily because of all of our laboratories and our research and our hospitals. Microgrids are small-scale power systems that produce electricity locally. Power comes from renewable energy sources, such as solar panels or wind turbines. A control system uses the electricity generated and stored on site. The system monitors the demand of homes and buildings, and responds according to their individual power needs. Microgrids plug into the larger utility grid. In the case of a disruption, such as a power outage, microgrids can disconnect and run independently. This is known as islanding.
1: The microgrid is essentially a single point of connection into the utility grid (laughs) and behind that is the entire campus, our 13 million square feet and 1,200 acres. And what it provides
0: us with is low cost, high reliable electrical service to the buildings. The California Energy Commission's research development and demonstration program has provided over $3 million to the UC San Diego microgrid, and the university has leveraged that funding into over $40 million from federal, industrial, and other sources. The results, a state-of-the-art living laboratory which serves as an educational proof of concept for energy system researchers worldwide. At the heart of the microgrid is a system which allows UC San Diego to control and balance energy demand, supply and storage in response to energy needs. One of the big benefits of a microgrid is that it can be used for locations where you need very reliable power. The microgrid generates energy through its 30 megawatt combined cooling, heating and power system. Connected to the system are 1.5 megawatts of solar photovoltaic cells, a 2.8 megawatt fuel cell and a 3.8 million gallon thermal storage tower. Renewable energy is one of our most favorite ways to approach uh, adding to the resources we have on our microgrid. Although local low-cost energy production and reliability have been the main appeal of microgrid technology at UC San Diego, researchers also hope that others learn from their example. One of the institutions taking notice is the US Navy. The federal government is the nation's largest electricity consumer, and the Department of Defense, which includes the U.S. Navy, comprises a large portion of this consumption. I visited UC San Diego with both Rear Admiral French and then later with Assistant Secretary Fannersteel. And they made a commitment based upon what they could see at UC San Diego to do a microgrid project on the basis in California.
2: Secretary of the Navy has set out some aggressive energy goals. The most aggressive of which is that 50 percent of our energy use will be from alternative resources by 2020. On our installations, microgrids are going to help us achieve that by reducing the amount of power that we need to buy from the commercial grid, protecting our critical loads on the basis, and saving money at the same time.
1: The Navy Marine Corps
0: team has made significant progress in changing our culture from one of consumption to one of conservation with the resulting reduction of energy usage and cost of savings. The next step for the Navy and Marine Corps team is to provide for our security and independence. UC San Diego and the U.S. Navy have set new standards for microgrid operations. These case studies demonstrate that the technology to manage and integrate local supply and load exists. It can enable an increasingly reliable and distributed energy future for Californians. Activities like this allow us to convert innovation in California's universities and laboratory into business opportunities for California. And as the Navy and others move microgrids worldwide, then California businesses can provide that technology, both software and hardware, to make microgrids a reality.
1: So just want you to focus for a moment on this 2.8-megawatt fuel cell that's using uh, a form of hydrogen. Uh, in in effect, through methane reformation. 2.3 megawatts of solar PV and a 30-megawatt co-generated methane-fired plant. Now, none of that methane is green, meaning it didn't come from renewable resources, which is why the UCSD system is not considered a green 100% renewable microgrid. The first one that will ever be built to scale anywhere in the world will be here at UCSB if we have our way because we've offered to help design the UCSB microgrid. And we would design it only as a 100% renewable, which would make it the first in, in the world. I, I think it's a pretty, well, of any consequence of size. I think it's particularly important that this has been up for two years now. It's already saving $8 million annually. Every year they save $8 million in their electrical bill. So when tuition keeps going up and up and we want to know what can we do to save money, how about getting cheaper electricity, for starters? <clears throat> And they've experimented with various storage systems. We'll talk about that in a second. And their goal is to be carbon neutral by 2025. My goal will be to have UCSB carbon neutral by 2017. What's wrong with that date? By the way, I I know that there's no rivalry between UCSB and UC San Diego, but wouldn't it be fun? Because they're not known as the head of physics down there. Those people are the biogeneticists. (laughs) They they should be studying cells. We should be doing energy. So this is a brief grid, a, a brief explanation of what a microgrid would look like. So you have various components. If you start up here in the left-hand corner, you're seeing storage. How do you store the excess power that you get from this unlimited resource called the sun? Now, in Santa Barbara, because the unique geography of the state of California, 100% of the city of Santa Barbara and the county faces due south. That's optimal for solar energy. It is not optimal for wind. Lompoc, great wind. Santa Barbara, poor wind. So we're gonna to have to do this with solar energy almost primarily, if not, well, primarily. And then we have to store it in various forms which we'll talk about in a second so that when it's raining or it's cloudy, our system keeps working. That's the key, storage. Um, smart communities, if you look to the right, is just talking about how neighborhoods can be part of it and at the same time they can share electricity or they can island themselves. If you keep going around the circle, commercial and industrial rooftops are particularly ideal locations for the microgrid, and just here's a rule of thumb. Currently, it takes about eight acres of land to get one megawatt of power. So at the Business Academy, we've identified enough acreage to put 250 megawatts of power, which compares very favorably with any size system you'd ever heard of. Uh, And we can do that all with solar and with what we think would be uh, what's called green methane, meaning using the methane that we're currently off-gassing into the air from the wastewater treatment facility over here in Goleta, which is a fairly good-sized one. All that methane goes up in the air every day totally wasted. We could get that methane to run a fuel cell, and no experiment would ever go dark on the UC Santa Barbara campus. We believe there should be um, uh, carports all over the airport, basically, another source of, of electricity. And there are many, many different sites we've identified where there are large flat roofs, like Citrix and others, which are huge opportunities to create solar energy, far more than we would use, and the excess would be put into storage. Um, So we talk about local energy production, et cetera, et cetera. And basically the heart of the whole thing is local control and management. We would then control our own destiny from an electrical point of view. Now we wouldn't have to unhook the grid if we choose to leave it running as the earlier video shows. Um, They stayed hooked to the grid in San Diego until there was a giant forest fire down in San Diego by almost, not quite two years ago now. And what happened was the San Diego grid was about to go down. So they called UCSD and they said, can you give us any extra power because you guys are still attached. And they said, yeah, we could probably give you about seven megawatts. That's what we could give you that we can spare. And as luck would have it, uh, that was enough to keep the entire grid in San Diego up and running. Otherwise, the San Diego grid would have crashed. So it's it's, it's huge when you can island yourself, because not only do you protect yourself, but you protect your neighbors. So the future is no grids. The future is networked community microgrids, because each one is totally independent, self-sustaining. You're creating the energy you need every day for what you burn, but you can also, you can combine them. Uh, you'll see in a minute a guy named Lorenzo Christoph, who, as I said earlier, was, is the chief theoretician for CAISO, the California Independent System Operator, which runs our grid. And he wrote a paper uh, in 2014, which I commented on in a second paper, and the two are now combined into one, basically, and, and where we identified specifically how you would create the network community microgrid of the future right down to the last little nuts and bolts. So none of the things I'm talking about today are futuristic or unknown. So this is what California would look like as a series of microgrids. Instead of what it is now, which is two long, thin wires that if you know how to manipulate and your name is Enron, you can take the entire state and jack us up. And that's what happened. So, and by the way, we're vulnerable because those two, what they're called the inner tie. Literally, there's a bottleneck where they go through and anything happens to that bottleneck, the whole state goes down. So it makes no sense not to do microgrids, and everybody who knows anything about grid technology would agree. So we want to integrate local renewable energy systems. We want to do plug-and-play, making them simple to finance in bulk. Private capital exists for all of this. And we want 100% or more of the energy used in California to come from renewables and quit goofing around telling us that every time we want to do another wind farm or another solar farm, we have to go bring another power plant on and build it So it can take care of it when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow. That is absolutely fallacious logic. It doesn't make any sense at all, and it's what's holding renewables back. You can imagine who is basically touting those philosophies. This is an example of what 100% renewable energy would look like in a microgrid village configuration. Uh, This particular one came out of Columbia University. The point is it's showing the answer to what I said earlier in this talk, which is that with power locally, at the village level, where you don't wait for the wire, you can literally hook on to the satellite. And all of a sudden, you can be part of the global conversation. You can become educated, and you can begin to see beyond your own limited horizons. So what's the missing piece of the microgrid success story? How do we advance that 100% renewable energy and revolutionize energy systems at the village level, as well as at the replacement for the grid in the US? The answer is storage, as I referred to earlier. Basically. Storage is always thrown up as the boogeyman that you can't get past because, oh, my goodness, where are you going to store all this energy? And, you know, the sun might not shine for a week. There are so many answers to that question now that I won't even have time to go into all of them. For example, one of them is a thing called a flow battery, which we'll show you in a second. Uh, a flow battery is a... Think of two giant beakers of electrolyte. And what you do is you typically put them underground. And to give you some idea how small they are, in the size of one tennis court, you can put an entire megawatt. So... If you think of 20 tennis courts in a typical tennis pavilion, that'd be 20 megawatts. So, and they're very, very uh, doable right now, as you'll see in a second. Hydrogen, probably the best ever storage vehicle, because once you store, once you take the very light bond between oxygen and hydrogen, which you find in water, and you electrolyze it, meaning you crack oxygen and hydrogen apart, the electron that gets released can then, uh, can be, then is reassembled, if you will. So when you burn that hydrogen, you've now pulled away from the oxygen, The hydrogen will now combine with oxygen, and it will now want to release the electron that it actually heavied up on, if you will, when it was cracked into hydrogen and oxygen. That process of the hydrogen combining with ambient air creates, basically, electricity. And the only byproduct of that combination is water vapor, because when you combine H with 2O, you get H2O, water. So this is an example I want to show you real quickly. This is a short video that will help you understand about flow batteries.
0: Wind turbines and solar panels are great sources of clean energy. But what happens if it's calm or cloudy? Flow batteries store power in liquid tanks. The bigger the tanks, the more energy they can store. Here's how they work. Two solutions, one negative, one positive, are pumped into the battery. The energy source charges the battery, pulling electrons from the positive solution, a process called oxidation, and pushing them into the negative solution, a process called reduction. When the battery turns on, the electron flow reverses, and it generates an electric current. Using non-toxic organic chemistry, Harvard researchers are building safer, cheaper flow batteries, moving us one step closer to a bright future lit by clean energy.
1: I'm grateful for Harvard putting that together because up until then, there was no simple little way to describe that beautifully simple technology called a storage battery. And just to let you know, flow, flow batteries are, in effect, hybrid fuel cells. So if you want to know about them, and by the way, the leading place in America to know about fuel cells is UC Irvine. That's where all the advanced labs are run by a professor named Scott Samuels, who is the member also of the academy team who designs these things. Um, I didn't go into lithium ion phosphate batteries, but what they are basically you've heard of the Tesla car. So that uses a thing called lithium ion cobalt. We don't want anybody to use those batteries because they, they have what are called heat dissipation problems, runaway heat problems, and they explode. But lithium-ion phosphate batteries are the opposite, and they're cleaner. And you can pack them as tight as pencils in a pack, and they'll never gain heat at all. That's what the U.S. military uses, is lithium-ion phosphate. Um, You can do a thing called pump and store, which is when you take energy, when you've got too much of it, and you pump water up the hill, literally. And you wait, and when you need the energy, it comes flowing back down and turns it back into electricity. So it's a way to change the time of day you've got the electricity. And there are many, many more. We don't Time doesn't allow me today, but actually storage is one of the fun topics. The state of California has an entire docket just dealing with all these different technologies, and I could go on and on. But rather than that, I just want to say to you, if anybody says to you, oh, well, the, the storage problem, no, that was a problem maybe five years ago, maybe 10 years ago. That is not a problem today. And even... One more thing that you need to know is, the, well, here's the hydrogen one. I just want to show you this. So if you take the excess electricity and wastewater, so water coming out of the back of our wastewater treatment facility, and you electrolyze it, as I said earlier, turns it into electricity by breaking the bond between the oxygen and the hydrogen. The hydrogen is captured, and it's stored. Uh, currently, the conventional wisdom is that all cars in the U.S. will run on 10,000 uh, PSI or pounds per square inch. Uh, that's very low pressure. So it's not something you have to worry about. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's a bicycle pump on steroids. you will get you to 10,000 PSI. It's not a heavy duty pressure. <clears throat> that then goes in these tanks. That's actually called a Titan tank. Uh, I think that's the Titan there out of a place in, in, um, in the middle of the U S that makes those. And that tank carries, uh, currently about 650 to 700 kilograms of hydrogen a kilogram is roughly two gallons of gas on an equivalent basis. And you can pull two of those at a time, and you get up to 11, 1,200 kilograms. It gets pretty fast. You, you can move a lot of hydrogen around. Uh, my favorite way to move it around, by the way, is dirigibles, but that's the subject of another lecture, which we'll talk about another day. Um, so storage isn't the problem. What's the problem? Here's the point. It's the will to create an alternative future. It's the only thing that's missing. It's just the will to create it. All these technologies, when woven together, create the fabric of a new society at the village and community level, and that will create a radically improved future for California and the world. So I wanna just draw your attention, because I am an economist, to the fact that people often say, well, you can't afford to do this. How can you afford to go with green energy? It's gonna hurt the economy and cost jobs. That is one of the great lies of all time. Every time a community turns towards renewable energies, the jobs go up. In Germany, for example, they've gone up by a factor over 10. So, meaning for every job lost in the coal plant, 10 new jobs arose, which were higher paying, by the way, in the the renewable energy sector. Now, why that's important is this. There are trillions of dollars waiting to be invested. There are the, the biggest players in the world. Bill Gates has announced his new energy fund. Every country in the world of any consequence is now putting money into this left and right. And most importantly, private enterprise loves this business. As you'll see in a moment, and at the end, I'm going to show you a little video. One of the men in there is a man named Jigger Shaw. You'll see him. He's talking about why we need to do microgrids, exactly the way the academy's designed. Jigger's the guy who actually invented putting solar cells on people's roofs in California and paying for it with private capital. Jigger did that in his 30s. He's an outrageously wealthy young man now. <laughs> okay? Now, private capital is standing in the wings and wants to do this because it actually is cheaper. Remember the UCSD example. They're saving $8 million a year. Companies love to invest in assets that save money. So the solution, together with pioneering leadership, so some vision, investment, we can catalyze unimaginable growth in the advanced energy industry we see coming and the global economy as a whole. We believe it is the solution, actually, to just about every problem we face. And I'll give you two numbers. Today, global GDP is about $65 trillion per year. When we have completed the conversion, which could take as little as 10 years to the hydrogen economy, that number will be $350 trillion. So 65 to 350 Nobody's going to be talking about how to pay for college education at that point. It won't be a campaign issue. It'll be so silly. No one's going to be talking about education. No one's going to be talking about medical care. No one's going to be talking about what to do as we have an aging population because when you create that kind of wealth, and we'll show you how we got there at some point in a future class, we can talk about how to do that calculation. But every time the planet has changed the planetary fuel system, you've had an enormous spike in economic activity. The biggest one's about to come, and it's the transition to the hydrogen future. So I'm gonna show you this video. This is a video we did last year. I'm going to apologize in advance because this video was actually created to show some prospective donors who are going to help us finance our work in microgrids. So you'll see at the end a little request for them to help. Uh, Obviously, we would be happy if any student chose to take us up on that, but that's not why I included the video. We included the video because we thought it was the best summary of what we're trying to say today in this class, and we're hoping that by giving you, leaving you this summary, you'll we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept and one we intend to
2: win. That's one small step for man, one
1: for you know, when JFK gave his speech in 1961, he said, we will land a man on the moon and bring him back safely by the end of the decade. He had no clue of how he could possibly do that. We rose to the occasion, and we in fact did land a man on the moon, and we did bring him back safely by 1969. So our moonshot is 100% renewable California in 10 years or less, no fossil fuels, no nuclear.
0: The clean energy moonshot is 100% achievable. The reality is that we're not dealing with rocket science. This is far easier than putting a man on the moon.
1: You're talking more about the cell phone revolution. In 1996, no one had a cell phone. By 2006, they had the iPhone. And the idea is as basic as changing out a 19th century technology and what we're proposing is that that entire system of grid as you know it be replaced by microgrids.
0: Global warming has to be our top priority. The science is undeniable. We're staring down the barrel of a gun, potentially looking at the end of human civilization. And it's not happening in the future, it's happening right now. The greatest damage humans do to the Earth is the way we do energy, and we've got to change it, and we've got to change it fast. Unless we address climate change, I think we are facing a near extinction. It is, at the moment, I think, the most urgent issue of our time. Climate change is a worldwide challenge that we, as a collective civilization here on Spaceship Earth, have to face. In order to rise to this challenge, we have to set really big goals. The Clean Energy Moonshot is an all-out sprint to 100% renewable energy, which is humanity's best strategy for mitigating climate change. Creating local energy systems called community microgrids will be crucial in achieving these aggressive renewable energy goals we can uh, uh, enable a higher percentage of renewables. Like a a microgrid can
2: uh, eventually help to do 100% renewables.
0: Community microgrids are the bridge between renewables and
1: getting to very significant levels of renewable energy and the future of the energy system. When you start making these kinds of uh, technologies available, Essentially, what it means is that you're empowering the consumer, you're empowering the communities to be able to participate more actively. When you think about the electricity grid, you think about electricity generation first. And that's really going to come from solar, wind, geothermal, biomass. But those don't generate power exactly when consumers are using power. Hydrogen plays a beautiful role there.
2: We're here at the Cal State LA station, which is the 10th station in the
1: network to come online. We're making our hydrogen here from electrolysis. Basically, we're
0: splitting water and we're using renewable energy. The most important aspect of a hydrogen fuel cell is the fact that we're using one of the purest fuels that we have, which is hydrogen, and the only byproduct that we're getting out of it is just water.
1: You can store it for an hour, a week, a month, a year and it doesn't actually go bad. And then you can convert it back into electricity when you need it using fuel cells. We can start to develop
0: hydrogen capability locally simply by having an electrolyzer facility combined with um, a large solar PV, combined with a fueling station for vehicles. We have 12 hydrogen buses that are part of our fleet and they're uh, fueled here on site with hydrogen that we actually produce from renewable energy sources. We can, in fact, collectively harness our creativity and our resources to heal the planet. We have the resources and all the technologies needed to move beyond the fossil fuel era to create a sustainable energy system.
1: The World Business Academy recognizes that. It's about exercising the latent talent that resides in all of us to a collective call and collective engagement. Funding that kind of thinking, that kind of framework, uh, is a better approach than continuing to fund the status quo and hoping, praying that somehow something's going to change. So that was the summary of what we just talked about. And I want to leave you with this quote. When this man, Jack Kennedy, turned to his chi- chief rocket scientist, Werner von Braun, when he was preparing to give that speech in 1961 and he said professor von Braun what does it take to get a man to the moon and back is that one rocket is it two? is it a slingshot is it a lander how do you do that what what, what technology will you use and von Braun told him the truth is they didn't have a clue they had no idea how they were gonna do it so Kennedy asked him the follow-up question he said so what does it take to get a man the moon and back. And Von Braun gave him a five-word answer. And if you don't remember anything else today, remember these five words. What Von Braun told Kennedy was, what it takes to put a man on the moon and bring him back safely is the will to do it. The will to do it. As you recall, as I said at the beginning of this lecture, the will to do it is all that stands between us and that victory that's going to raise over a billion people out of poverty is going to ensure that your campus stays lit and that fossil fuels are replaced by renewable energy, which would then be solving the greatest single challenge human society has ever faced, its own extinction. Fortunately or unfortunately, you're the generation that's going to make that come true. It'll be up to you. Thank you. Great. So the question I asked at the beginning, if anybody's got an answer, if you knew you could change that, if you could solve the biggest challenge facing human civilization, if you could do that, what would keep you from doing it? What reason would you have not to do it? You don't have to answer if you don't want to, but it's a good question to answer. Privately, if you want.
0: Um, not as-
1: you- yeah, it's, it's on. It does, you don't know it because it's, they're filming it. Oh.
0: Um, I'm wondering about the flow batteries you were talking about. Sure. What's their effect on the environment? Are they recyclable? Like what's their, the amount of time that they'll be useful for? What do you do with them
1: after they're done? Yeah. As that piece I showed you from Harvard University, you can now make them out of organic chemicals. So basically, they're harmless. Um, the ones that are commercially available today, the Harvard study says that they'll have those available fairly shortly. The ones available today use something that's less caustic to the environment than Drano, literally. Uh, and what you do is you recycle them over and over again because every time... So you saw how they, were, like, they would take the electron strip it off and they went from positive to negative, as I was saying earlier, and then when they wanted to reverse it, they would release the electron, creating electricity. That process can be repeated endless times. So unlike uh, traditional batteries, which have charge-discharge cycle issues, um, flow batteries really don't suffer from it. So flow batteries are what's called a utility-scale-sized application, megawatts and above.
0: Also, for your plan for UCSB, you said you're going to execute that about within the next year. Um, What type of energy are you going to use for that? Is that specifically solar?
1: Yeah. Well, I said I'd like to. I haven't been invited to yet. Okay. (laughs) I would love to be invited to do it by UCSB. Uh, There is a university-wide program to develop clean energy sources and deliver them to all the UC campuses. Of all the UC campuses, there's only one in the state that won't be able to participate properly, and that's UCSB. Because we have to take our power from that line, which is compromised. So UCSB has to develop a micro, in my humble opinion. And I'm hopeful that the administration here will eventually come to see that with more clarity and that they'll ask us to uh, help them create that. But the design for the UCSB system uh, incorporates primarily solar. And you'll love this because one of the things we want to do is put solar on all the parking lots so they'll all be shaded which is nice. Uh, uh, we, like to walk, we like solar walkways also, so those will be shaded. Uh, and we would like to put in about a 2.8-megawatt fuel cell, which we would run with what's called green methane, so methane recaptured instead of vented into the air. So those are all available today. Uh, we also would use uh, green methane, of course, from the, uh, the wastewater treatment facility, but we have a source of green methane to use while that one's being converted over, because right now that plant down the street, which UCSB owns a big piece of, by the way, is not the most advanced wastewater treatment facility in America, to put it mildly. Thank you. You bet. They have new management, by the way. It just took over about a year ago. A young, young guy that's, I think, going to really move them forward, I hope. Next question. Back.
2: I was wondering if you had an idea of what the economic implications of, I guess, diminishing our our capacity to produce energy cheaply by weaning off fossil fuels, while countries like, like China just continue to add billions of tons of coal, and they're able to basically make themselves more economically competitive, where we're kind of left, you know, holding the bag for the living situations of people in third world countries. Yeah.
1: Okay. So first of all, there's a fallacy. In what you, just, you you just made the assumption, which is absolutely incorrect, that renewable energy is more expensive than coal. It's not. Not just for openers. So what China, the two fastest growth industries in China today is making windmills and making solar cells. The vast majority of every solar cell in the world comes from China. And the majority of windmills come from China. And the Chinese are pretty smart. They know that's the future. That's why the Chinese and the Americans have agreed on these reduction goals in Paris. No, China, the faster we get to renewable, the sooner we save money. Okay, how many people in this room have a car? Okay. Have you noticed gasoline prices in the last few months. Has anybody noticed how far they've come down? Now, were you mad about that? Did that bother you? Was that upsetting? No, because you got to put more money in your pocket and less in your tank. The whole fossil fuel system is designed to take money out of your pocket and put it in their tank. So once you start to get off of it, it's like heroin. It sounds like it's cheap, but it's not. And you got to pull the needle. So the, the, we, the faster we get into renewables, the faster We will our economy will overtake the Chinese. The problem is we invented the windmill culture here in the United States and they got better at making because we stopped building them. Uh, we, We invented solar cells in America. They're all made in China now. So everything we do in the renewable energy field that exports jobs to China is doing two things. One, they make it cheaper for us to use solar here, which I'm grateful for and wind here. But two, it helps China get off of coal, and it gets us economically more valuable because we get licensing royalties, we get all kinds of of benefits. And we have all these jobs now for people who never had a job 10 years ago called solar installers. There's thousands of them in California. And these are middle-class jobs. So there's this huge fallacy that the oil companies peddle, the fossil fuel companies. Gee, how are we going to afford to be competitive if we get off of fossil fuel? The answer is you're more competitive just like you're going further now on a gallon of gas, I mean, f- further on a dollar's worth of gas, okay? The more you can reduce your dependence on fossil fuels, the richer society is. And we have a thing here for the economists in the room called the multiplier effect, right? It's a little over 5.2 to 1. So every time you save a dollar in the American economy and you put it back in the domestic economy, you get $5.2 back. Economics 101. So when you start to get off of fossil fuel, what happens is it, un- it unleashes the wealth that can then go into the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. But specifically with renewable energy, it is cheaper. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. It is cheaper to use renewables than fossil fuels. And that's why we should do it, just for purely economic reasons, although, frankly, I'm moved by the moral ones as well. Thanks.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.